Chapter 52 of The Wild Huntress. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annabelle Smith. The Wild Huntress by Thomas Main Reed. Chapter 52. Raising a Rampart. I kept the telescope to my eye not half so long as I have taken in telling of it. Quick as I saw that the men stirring around the wagon were Indians, I thought only of screening my person from their sight. To effect this, I dropped down from the summit of the rock, on the opposite side from that facing toward the savages. Showing only the top of my head, and with the glass once more leveled up the valley, I continued the observation. I now became assured that the victim of the ensanguined skull was a white man, that the other prostrate forms were also the bodies of white men, all dead, all, no doubt, mutilated in a similar manner? The tableau told its own tale. The presence of the wagon halted, and, without horses, one or two dead ones lying under the tongue, the ruck of Indians clustering around it, the bodies stretched along the earth, other objects, boxes and bales, strewed over the sward, all were significant of recent strife. The scene explained what we had heard while coming up the canyon. The fusillade had been no fancy, but a fearful reality. Fearful, too, in its effects, as I was now satisfied by the testimony of my telescope. The caravan had been attacked, or, more likely, only a single wagon that had been straggling in the rear. The firing may have proceeded from the escort, or the armed emigrants. Indians may have fallen. Indeed, there were some prostrate forms apart, with groups gathered around them, and those I conjectured to be the corpses of red men. But it was evident the Indians had proved victorious, since they were still upon the field, still holding the place and the plunder. Where were the other wagons of the train? There were fifty of them. Only one was in sight. It was scarcely possible that the whole caravan had been captured. If so... They must have succumbed within the pass? A fearful massacre must have been made? This was improbable, the more so that the Indians around the wagon appeared to number near two hundred men. They must have constituted the full band, for it is rare that a war party is larger. Those seen appeared to be all warriors, naked from the breech clout upward, their skins glaring with pigments. Neither woman nor child could I see among them. Had the other wagons been captured, there would not have been so many of the captors clustered around this particular one. In all likelihood, the vehicle been coming up behind the others? The animals drawing it had been shot down in the skirmish, and it had fallen into the hands of the successful assailants. These conjectures occupied me only a moment. Mingled with them was one of still more special import. To whom had belonged the abandoned wagon? With fearful apprehension, I covered the ground with my glass, straining my sight as I gazed through it. I swept the whole surface of the surrounding plain. I looked under the wagon, on both sides of it, and beyond. I sought amidst the masses of dusky forms, I examined the groups and stragglers, even the corpses that strewed the plain. Thank heaven, they were all black, or brown, or red. All appeared to be men, both the living and the dead. Thank heaven. The ejaculation ended my survey of the scene. It had scarcely occupied ten seconds of time. It was interrupted by a sudden movement on the part of the savages. Those on horseback were seen separating from the rest, and, the instant after, 
appeared coming on in the direction of the butte. The movement was easily accounted for. My imprudence had betrayed our presence. I had been seen while standing on the summit of the mound. I felt regret for my own rashness, but there was no time to indulge in the feeling, and I stifled it. The moment called for action, demanding all the firmness of nerve and coolness of head, which, fortunately, I had acquired by the experience of similar arises. Instead of shouting to my comrades, as yet unconscious of the approaching danger, I remained upon the summit without uttering a word or showing a sign that might alarm them. My object in so acting was to avoid the confusion consequent upon a sudden panic, and keep my mind free to think over some plan of escape. The Indians were still five miles off. It would be some minutes at least before they could attack us. Two or three of these could be spared for reflection. After that, it would be time to call in the counsel of my companions. I am here describing in detail, and with the tranquility of closet retrospect, thoughts that follow one another with the rapidity of lightning flashes. To say that I reflected coolly would not be true. I was at that moment too much under the influence of fear for tranquil reflection. I perceived at once that the situation was more than dangerous. It was desperate. Flight was my first thought, or rather, my first instinct. For on reflection, it failed. The idea was to fling off the packs, mount the two pedestrians upon the mules, and gallop back for the canyon. The conception was good enough, if it had been carried out, but of this there was no hope. The defile was too distant to be reached in time. The two who might ride the mules could never make it, they must fall by the way. Even if all four of us should succeed in getting back to the canyon, what then? Was it likely we should ever emerge from it? We might for a time defend ourselves within its narrow gorge, but to pass clear through and escape at the other end would be impossible. A party of our pursuers would be certain to take over the ridge and head us below, to anticipate them in their arrival there, and reach the woods beyond, would be utterly out of our power. The trail through the canyon was full of obstacles, as we had already discovered, and these would delay us. Without a prospect of reaching the forest below, it would be of no use attempting flight. In the valley around us there was no timber to tract, nothing that deserved the name of a wood, only copses and groves, the largest of which would not have sheltered us for an hour. I had a reflection. Happy am I now, and proud, that I had the virtue to stifle it. For myself, escape by flight might not have been so problematical. A steed stood near that could have carried me beyond all danger. It only needed to fling myself into the saddle and ply the spur. Even without that impulsion, my Arab would, and could, have carried me clear of the pursuit. Death was preferable to the thought. I could only indulge it as a last resort, after all else had failed and fallen. Three men were my companions, true and tried. To all of them I owed some service, to one little less than my life, for the bullet of the eccentric ranger had once saved me from an enemy. It was I who had brought on the impending attack. It was but just I should share its danger, and the thought of shunning it vanished on the instant of its conception. Escape by flight appeared hopeless. On the shortest survey of the circumstances, I perceived that our only chance lay in defending ourselves. The chance was not much worth, but there was no alternative. We must stand and fight, or fall without resisting. From such a foe as that coming down upon us, we need to expect no grace, 
not a modicum of mercy. Where was our defense to be made? On the summit of the butte? There was no better place in sight, no other that could be reached, offering so many advantages. Had we chosen it for a point of defense, it could not have promised better for the purpose. As already stated, the cone was slightly truncated, its top ending in a mesa. The table was large enough to hold four of us. By crouching low, or lying flat upon it, we should be screened from the arrows of the Indians, or such other weapons as they might use. On the other hand, the muzzles of four guns pointed at them would deter them from approaching the base of the butte. Scarcely a minute was I in maturing a plan, and I lost less time in communicating it to my companions. Returning to them, as fast as I could make the descent, I announced the approach of the Indians. The announcement produced a surprise sufficiently unpleasant, but no confusion. The old soldiers had been too often under fire to be frightened out of their senses at the approach of an enemy, and the young hunter was not one to give way to panic. All three remained cool and collected as they listened to my hurried detail of the plan I had sketched out for our defense. There was no difficulty in inducing them to adopt it. All agreed to it eagerly and at once. In short, all saw that there was no alternative. Up the mound again, this time followed by my three comrades, each of us heavily laden. In addition to our guns and ammunition, we carried our saddles and mule packs, our blankets and buffalo robes. It was not their intrinsic value that tempted us to take this trouble with our impedimenta. Our object was to make with them a rampart upon the rock. We had just time for a second trip, and, flinging our first loads up to the table, we rushed back down the declivity. Each seized upon such objects as offered themselves, phalluses, the soldiers' knapsacks, joints of the antelope lately killed, and the noted meal bag, all articles likely to avail us in building our bulwark. The animals must be abandoned, both horses and mules. Could we take them up to the summit? Yes, the thing could be accomplished, but to what purpose? It would be worse than useless, since it would only render them an aim for the arrows of the enemy, and ensure their being shot down at once. To leave them below appeared the better plan. A tree stood near the base of the mound. To its branches, their bridles had already been looped. There they would be within easy range of our rifles. We could shelter them so long as there was light. To protect them might appear of little advantage, since in the darkness they could be easily taken from us. But in leaving them thus, we were not without some design. We, too, might build a hope on the darkness. If we could succeed in sustaining the attack until nightfall, flight might then avail us. In truth, that seemed the only chance we should have of ultimately escaping from our perilous situation. We resolved, therefore, to look well to the safety of the animals, though, forced to forsake them for a time, we might still keep the enemy off, and again recover them. The contingency was not clear, and we were too much hurried to dwell long upon it. It only flitted before our minds like a gleam of light, though, the misty future. I had just time to bid farewell to my Arab, to run my fingers along his smooth arching neck, to press my lips to his velvet muzzle. Brave steed, tried and trusty friend, I could have wept at the parting. He made answer to my caresses, he answered them with a low whimpering neigh. He knew there was something amiss, that there was danger, our hurried movements had apprised him of it. 
but the moment after, his altered attitude, his flashing eyes, and the loud snorting from his spread nostrils, told that he perfectly comprehended the danger. He heard the distant trampling of hoofs. He knew that an enemy was approaching. I heard the sounds myself, and rushed back up the butte. My companions were already upon the summit, busied in building the rampart around the rock. I joined them and aided them in the work. Our paraphernalia proved excellent for the purpose, light enough to be easily handled, and sufficiently firm to resist either bullets or arrows. Before the Indians had come within hailing distance, the parapet was completed, and, crouching behind it, we awaited their approach. End of chapter 52